everybody, welcome to the Lettuce Club. I'm Dylan Gowan. I'm Lucy Yeomans. And I'm Naya Carlson. the author of From the Cotton Field to the Education Field, People Who Made My Journey in Life Possible. Uh, very, very interesting book. So, Mark Faust actually... Louder. Sorry, Ma Mark, I'm sick, buddy. Okay, <laughs> Mark Faust actually came up to us after... It was a, the, an author that talking That was, yeah, thing? the author talking to us. That's what it the was proposal. The Michael, um, Michael and Doc Chase. Mm -hmm. What books has he written? The English Patient? The English Patient, yes. That was, yes. Well, he, yes, he came up to us with the proposal of intervening you, and I got very excited because it was the first time that anyone outside of Clark Central and our friends and family like wanted to be interviewed or had asked about um, anyone else being interviewed. And so I personally got very excited. And for it to be someone like you, you know, like one of the first black teachers to teach in, in desegregated schools in the 60s, that's just an incredible opportunity. So thank you for being here to talk with us. Um, so you've had a memoir published. Congratulations. Thank um, you. It's a very fantastic accomplishment. So how do you feel about it? Are you excited or indifferent? Just giddy? Well, I'm excited to be here. And I guess I'm excited to be with some students again. <laughs> I retired 20 years ago. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, so, Mark spoke briefly about how you just kind of told your stories and he typed them out. So, what was that process like? How was the experience? Um, well, the experience was great. I had not met Mark, and mm -hmm. um, they Mark reads to the seniors at the senior center. We have a reading club, and so when I was asked if I would join the reading club, <laughs> I jokingly said yes if he'll help me with the book I want to write. And that's how I had not seen him and he had not seen me and he agreed to do so. And we thoroughly enjoyed it. We did a lot of the work at the senior center and uh, they would let us use the computer there. And after uh, time with the, as the book was progressing along, uh, then we started meeting at my house and he would come on Wednesdays and work about an hour, mm -hmm. and uh, after he did the work, we, I mean, I did the talking and he did the typing, and we finally ended up with the book. It's such a, uh, I think, a unique experience being able to, to write a book, especially about your life, um, and have it published, and it's a very, very interesting life that you've had. Um, so I guess we can start in all the questions about the book now. So. What are your three favorite memories from teaching, times that made all the work and difficulties worth the struggle? There are so many memories, it's hard to narrow it down uh, to three, but uh, I started trying to narrow it to, to three. <laughs> um, one, something about uh, teaching, I find that um, it was necessary that once you go into a classroom, that you go in with the intention of treating everybody fair. And, and therefore, once you do that, then you get respect from your students. And in order to keep that, you have to be fair. And I believed in being firm, 
but being fair. And that was one of the things. And uh, I guess a, one of the favorite memories uh, during that time, uh, I started off teaching high school and I had just finished college myself. I graduated on a Thursday, got the job on Friday, started work on Monday. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and some of the older teachers had told me about when they, uh, when I met them and when they saw my class roster, they wanted to know how was I going to handle that because other teachers had retired that year because of the bad behavior of those students. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, then that kind of frightened me. And I wanted to know why the principal gave me that particular you know, group of people. Yeah, yeah. And so after he had done that, I, and they told me about it, I went straight to the office and uh, wanted to inquire why. And he said he thought I was a person uh, that could handle the group. So from that, the fear left. And so my first year, I had a student that was older than me. Oh, wow. So he wrote me this little love letter. <laughs> So that's the first thing I had to deal with. <laughs> so I had to tell him that I didn't play with children, and I never let him know that I was uh, that he was older than me. Mm -hmm. And it settled, you know. Once I told him I did not play with children. And another one of the favorite times was after having taught for several years. Uh, I had students, I had become involved with state science fairs when I worked in Oconee County. And then when I went back to Morgan County to work, I started involving the students in state science fairs. And then once having some winners, it made it all worthwhile, you know. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was something that was uh, worth uh, being one of the favorite times of teaching. And there are other times when you, you see students make progress and they might come into your classroom and you have to talk with and to them to try to find out because they, they don't have the enthusiasm that most of the students have. But sometimes when you find out about their background and you know how to handle the situation to help them succeed. Mm -hmm. And any time you can do that with a student, it makes it all worthwhile. That's very inspiring. Um, do you have um, any like favorite students? Like what were they like and how did you build good relations good relationships with them? Well I had I loved all my students. Mm -hmm. I, there were some that naturally would, I guess you could call your favorites because they were doing everything they could to please me and to try to meet the requirements and to make A's and to do well in school. But then you had the others, as I've mentioned before, that might have had some personal problem at home and you had to find out about it. So therefore, when you go into a setting or into a classroom, you're going to meet all kinds of situations. And the first thing you need to do is to work with each of the students individually to try to find out 
only teacher there. But believe it or not, I graduated from college before Miss Jessa, <laughs> and therefore I ended up teaching uh, for her that summer as a substitute while she went to get her degree. But I still say Miss Jessa was one of the best teachers I ever had. That's amazing. Uh, I have one that can come later, uh, but go ahead. Okay, um, well, I guess, um, the 60s and the 50s were very um, influential time periods for the U.S. Um, and so I guess I'm trying to say is what kinds of changes did you see, um, not only in your students, but like in, in your community, and what kinds of things were lost over time and that you think we should have um, held on to, and what have we gained that, was, that has become beneficial? Um. During that time, changes did take place. And one of the um, main changes that I think took place was discipline. And we find that it was a period of time where blacks had not worked with white children, and white children were used to being with the blacks. So uh, for some, in particular, there become discipline problems because in the schools when they were not, uh, when they were uh, desegregated, uh, well, was segregated, uh, they, the discipline was different. They used paddlings and yeah. things like that. Of course, I had to teach my own children, so I just set an example that they would last well, for year I had told my son um, about his behavior one day when I had spoken to the class about it's time for class and I wanted you to settle down. Well, he turned around to talk to his little friend, so I advised him that night before that should not happen. If he could talk, everybody else in the class could talk. Mm -hmm. Well, the very next morning, he went to class and decided he's going to talk to Stanley. So when he turned around talking to Stanley, I just invited him out of the door with my meter stick and gave him one good lick, and that settled that for the rest of the year. And you better believe that was the best class. And when I meet those young men, they just always hugging me and reminding me of that particular day. I went to a funeral on Thursday, and I saw several of my children there some of that particular class, and they were there, you know, in res giving respect to one of the, the lady who was deceased daughters, because I taught the lady's daughters, and so I was just able to see them and be reminded of things that happened. Uh, so you talked a little about uh, kind of the period of time where uh, the schools were being desegregated. So is there one moment that stands out to you that really made it like real for you that, okay, this is happening? Well, the real moment was I went to school on a Friday and children were crying and, um, and there was a, a fight in the hall, which I didn't see, but I heard about it and just discipline problems that day because they had gotten the word, and I hadn't gotten the word that the school was going to have to be uh, integrated by 1 o'clock. 
And the whole ninth grade class was going to be sent to Oconee County High School. So when I went to lunch, that's when I found out the details and I asked, talked to the principal and he was saying, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't know who I'm going to see. And so I volunteered go because I was kind of teaching out of my field. And uh, I said, I will go uh, if uh, he will put me in my field. And I asked him to teach science and I volunteered. And then the principal came back to me and said, I can't let you go. Who's going to keep your classes for the rest of the day? So he called back over. And when he talked to the principal at O'Connor High School, he agreed to let us come on Monday. And then we could stay with our classes for the rest of the day that we, you know, had. They, they went on and sent the ninth grade whole class. I think they sent them on that particular afternoon mm -hmm. so that they could meet the requirements to keep from losing federal money. <laughs> that's insane. Uh, I can't imagine yeah, having to move schools in the middle of the day. Yeah. Especially. That's, yeah, I, I was not expecting something, so this is the moment. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> was the moment. The moment. <laughs> and I, I had no problem volunteering to go. I just like people, and I never had a problem getting along with people. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I could go over to Oconee High School and teach and enjoy it if they let me teach science. And you were only one of two of the teachers that went over? There were two. They sent um, the other girl. She taught business, I believe it was. I don't think we have that class anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think that's history and business. She taught two different subjects, mm -hmm. I think, but that was what she was teaching at the school where she came from. But um, they gave me an eighth grade class, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then I got to meet the teachers, and they were all friendly. Mm -hmm. The principal was just as nice as anybody I had worked for, and we had no problems. So it was, a, it was a smooth transition? Yes, it was. Wow, I would not expect that. That's, that's really amazing. Um, so, okay, moving on to when you were younger, um, there were, at least from what I read, I don't know if um, this is how it was or anything, but it seems like there were a lot of people in your life that um, died when you were younger. Um, has this shaped you in a specific way? Perhaps it did, and I didn't know that it was doing it. Um, my dad died when I was two and a half years old, and I probably would have grown up in Miami, Florida, had he not died because he was working at a dock in Miami, Florida, and had contracted tuberculosis. So they put me in a car and sent me back to Georgia to one of my, to my dad's mom. Um, you know, and my dad was still there in Florida. I don't know how much longer they, uh, and, but anyway, they sent me back as the child to that particular grandmama and granddaddy. So um, then my dad and those, I think they got him back to Georgia because I know he was buried in Georgia, but I cannot, I know the church where he was buried, but I cannot find the grave. And my sister was born, I was 
two and a half years older than my sister. So my sister was born on the 19th of December. My dad died the first week, so I was told in December. So therefore, uh, I had two little brothers. And then those little brothers, after my dad died, the two little brothers died. But they, one of whooping cough, I believe, in the other of dysentery, if I remember correctly, um, I was told. But they were young, and you know, being a child myself, the death didn't affect me right then because, you know, I didn't know what's going on as far as, I just knew they died or I didn't see them anymore. I don't even know. Uh, you know about the barrel. I can't remember anything about a film or anything mm -hmm. for either my dad. But then with the sickness and the death then that, you know, my grandparents, then my, my granddaddy on my mother's side went and retrieved me from my dad's mom and dad and brought me back. And they said I just cried all the way, you know, I didn't want to be with them, but he had gone and built a little house, you know, for my mother and the children to stay. But then the little brothers died, but my sister and I were survivors, mm -hmm. and she lived to be 69, and she died in 2009. Um, I'm just curious. Um, I'm actually from Miami. Um, so, have, do you have any memories from there, or like, have you visited since you were? Oh there? yes, I I have visited, um, gone on cruises or whenever we <laughs> go through or what have you. I love cruising, you know. <laughs> so, um, and I do have my mother has a son that lives there. So we talked last week and hour, mm -hmm. and then I have first cousins on my dad's side because other family members were there. I have a lot of relatives in Miami and around Miami. Mm -hmm. So uh, we talk every once in a while. And some of them I know, some I don't know. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of people there now. Um, oh, I lost my spot. <laughs> okay. Well, um, okay. Well, we're on Saturday. Weren't we? I, like, or skipped a lot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I see what we're doing. Sorry. Um, well, we can come back to that. No, um, no, so, if you could change anything about your life, would you? And if so, what what would that be? Like, um, this opportunity, or um, maybe someone um, didn't pass away. What do you think? Well, if I could have changed those deaths, I believe I would have mm -hmm. because. I always wanted a brother, so I just claim other cousins <laughs> <laughs> that grew up in the neighborhood or around us. And I, the one, my favorite, uh, died last year in California, so I went to the funeral. Um, he was the only boy among four girls, and uh, that was my sister, me, and then he had two sisters. And, but we were jealous of him because my granddad would let him do things, wouldn't let us do, you know, and he could get out there with the wagon or the tractor or whatever my granddad was doing and help, you know. And we, we got a little jealous about that. Mm -hmm. But I always thought I wanted a brother and, you know, what I could do if I had a brother, 
and never went places because other girls will say, my brother took me or we went somewhere, you know, together because mom would let them go because they had a brother. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get to go because we didn't have a brother and my grandparents weren't about to take us. So, so that would have been one something. I would have loved that would see the children in the neighborhood run to meet their dads uh -huh. when they would be coming in from work. So my sister had adopted her dad and she would run and meet one of the neighbors. But I would just stand back and look what was mm -hmm. deep within were wishing I had a dad too. And I would think of things that maybe if I had a dad I could have done. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would, I can imagine that would be really, really um, hard. But I remember reading that part in your, in your book, um, Liz, you just yes. showed me today. <laughs> That's a really, really, um, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a really um, nice um, gesture, I think, from your sister. Um, so we saw that the Eastern community wasn't, segre wasn't segregated, is that what it was, until the 50s? Well, the oh. East End community, we were the only blacks that, when I was a little girl, that lived there. Mm -hmm. And then gradually the whites start moving out and as the whites moved out, the blacks moved in. <laughs> That's how it ended ended up. But at one point, uh, my granddaddy had bought that land in 1938 and he had moved his you know, family there. Mm -hmm. And the neighbors all around, and we close to a railroad track and on both sides of the railroad track, they were white. And therefore, I had, there was only one set of the white children who became our good buddies and friends, you know, and we just played like sisters and brothers and went from one house to the other until my granddad um, built a fence to keep me in. And because uh, I was loving to go over to Miss Head's house and eat with them, and they would come over to our house and eat with us, you know. <laughs> and on the weekends, when sometimes their father would drink a little bit and get a little rowdy, and they would come run into our house, and, and um, my granddaddy would let him go to sleep and go over and make sure he sleep, and then they would go back home, and next time, next day we'd know we're back again playing. I have this scar right here from where one of the girls, um, I was borrowing some lard, which was a paint bucket full of red mud. But that was my lard, you know, I was borrowing, and my head caught it because I was clumsy. And as I tell you, it didn't weigh but 82 when I graduated in high school, so this was when I was much younger. And uh, we played together, got along. Um, she would bring her children there and would go with my grandmama up to my aunt's house who made our clothes. We were able to, discover, my aunt was the one discovered that their baby sister could not hear. Oh yeah. And they had put the baby on the floor and my aunt accidentally dropped some scissors and noticed that she paid no attention. So then she dropped them on purpose. So we got along good. Uh, when Georgia Power came through, they would not give us electricity. And 
everybody else, you know, had lights. So my granddad knew somebody down in Buckhead, Georgia, and he went down there and got Mr. Brew to come and build a little house, just a tiny little somebody wide at that board, and put a little motor in there called a Delco motor, and they run wires to our house so we could pull down. We The lights would pull down from the ceiling, and we would have light just like the people with, and didn't have to pay George Powell. <laughs> So finally, Georgia Power, I can't remember just how many years it was before Georgia Power then gave us electricity. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, oh, later in, um, I think when you were in high school, you took a home economics class. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that there were never any boys in the home economics class. Was that just um, a social thing or was it an all-girls class? It, it was an all-girls class because that was the rule. Girls and boys just didn't mix. They didn't talk about sex and uh, the, the kinds of classes that you have now mm-hmm. and where you can um, be together uh, depending on what you're interested in. Maybe when you get ready to go to college and you want to choose your career early by starting taking classes that you're interested in, uh, that did not happen. You had to the boys took agriculture and the girls took home economics. Oh, that's interesting. Um, okay, so you mentioned that, um, I remember you mentioned that uh, your mama freaked out when someone said the word pregnant. Oh yeah, well, my grandmama. Your grandma? <laughs> yes. Um, there was a girl who had gotten pregnant in high school and people had began to talk about the girl you know, was going to have a baby. Of course, they used every term in the book but pregnant. And so I heard my grandmama talking to the next-door neighbor, and I intervened and said, it's nothing wrong with her because I saw her yesterday, I believe it was. And, uh, she hasn't broken her leg. Well, nothing wrong with her leg. She's just pregnant. <laughs> and then my and mama said she didn't ever want to hear that word again. <laughs> so I had two children uh-huh. before my grandmama passed, but I never used the word pregnant again, and that's my grandmama on the book. Are there any other words that are commonly used today that um, your grandmother would not have approved of? Well, I know like people curse and every other word they say or what have you. I never heard her say a profane word, and I can truthfully say I would hear her going through the house at night praying because my sister was a sickly child. And, you know, um, she didn't have very much education, but she had a whole lot of love. And my granddad would be in there just snoring and (laughs) mama walking the floor Paying for my sister, and I'm listening to it. And sometimes I would stay uh, up as late as I could, and he had said, turn, those light, turn the light off, and would turn the light off, and we had a fireplace, and I would be down sometime trying to read by the light from the fireplace. But I always had a desire to learn and try to be the best that I could be. Mm-hmm. That's important, I think. Do you uh, have a question? I do have a question. So 
when I was reading your book, uh, something that really stood out to me is you seemed to, all through your life, have a lot of uh, really strong female figures. So do you think that really helped shape you as a person? Maybe so, because of the nature of the classes, but I can say in high, my favorite teacher was a man, and it was uh, and when I say favorite teacher, I'm not talking about in the grade school. This was after I got to high school, and his name was Mr. Joseph Johnson, and that's why I majored in science, because of his inspiration and how he taught. We didn't have experiments. We didn't have the equipment to do things with, not even a periodic chart on the wall. or You know we didn't have computers, so we couldn't you know, get all of that information from the computer. But uh, I had more female teachers, mm -hmm. I think, than male teachers. And that had something to do with it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, as you were talking about uh, your teaching style, um, I think it was on page 78, yeah? You said that you try to meet children where they are. Um, I think nowadays, at least, um, in our county, there's been an ongoing discussion about equity versus equality. Um, are you familiar with that debate? Well, when we look at it, if, if a child can't read, and a child don't have the books or dictionaries or whatever they need at home to help them, then I say to find the child where he is and meet his needs as far as possible. And that might mean even uh, working with the child after school. I have stayed after school. I've worked with homebound children. I, I mean, I've traveled out of the county to work with homebound children and uh, to help them in any way I could. Mm -hmm. And we, we find that that's a, a lot of times when children don't succeed, they feel like they have a teacher who does not care. And sometimes the teacher is, it's not that the teacher is an unloving person, they just don't see the need because they are so busy trying to meet the requirements and the state requirements that you need to till you miss the need of the child. Because I know testing is one of the main things and everybody yes. wants their children to do well on tests and to succeed on tests. And that's important, especially when you're trying to get in the elite colleges mm -hmm. and what have you, so you want to do your very best on the test. But we find that there's so much to teaching that you have to show the child that you care. Just like one of the instances in the book was what the K, the KKK. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. See, that child, I didn't punish him. The principal had known that he's been read to now from that paddle that he would have got. But uh, he didn't get it. I didn't ever send him to the principal's office because I had talked to another teacher about his behavior coming into my classroom every day, doing something different just to get attention. And she had told me that his mom was very sick with cancer. Therefore, I knew that he needed some special attention. 
And so I didn't know I was going to have to give it to him that particular way. Mm-hmm. But then when I walked to my desk and hear the KKK on the desk, and I just walked in there and said, who's in love with them? I am too. I've named three babies, and they all started with K, and I was not lying. My daughter's name is Karen, and her name is Crystal, and a Kevin. And so they just sat very quiet. And then finally, this little boy uh, said that his granddad was one, so I popped back. I have a granddad. Anything you can do, I can do better. Let's have class. <laughs> so you have to learn how to handle this situation. Uh-huh. The, the perfect response to that. Um, yeah, so what what advice would you give to teachers now to um, help with with meeting children where they are? Um, yeah. Number one, to love what you're doing. I loved teaching. I loved working with children. And sometimes I think there are some teachers who work just for the paycheck. Mm-hmm. As not all of the teachers, but we find that some do. Uh, they need to show the student, first of all, that they care about them. They're interested, and I, I don't need, they don't need to be so lovey-dovey and, you know, carrying on like I hear on TV and people getting fired from their jobs. Not to that extent, but they need to have an interest. Mm-hmm. And we find that love just, nothing can beat love. And when you learn that, you learn people are people. And I don't care, your needs are going to be the same as the needs I had as a child or as a person. And we'll have to, you know, if you're sick, you're going to need some special attention. But other than that, as far as the classroom is concerned, Go in there knowing what it, what it is you need to do. And what I did, and I had a plenty of problems, you know. Uh, but when I left my house in the morning, I would say my little prayers to leave my burdens on my step and not take them to school. Mm-hmm. And go in there with a clear mind to work with whoever was in my, uh, on my road. I think I speak for all of us when we say we need more people like you <laughs> in, our, yeah, in our world and in our education system today. Um, do you guys have anything? I, uh, I asked the questions I wanted to ask. All right, well, we'll just continue. So I thought it was, I was reading um, this and I read, I, okay, let me just set up this scenario. So I was getting my tires changed on my car and so I read the majority of your book in the Toyota waiting room. <laughs> so I couldn't react openly to a lot of stuff that I was reading or else people would have been questioning my sanity. But so I liked the part when you said kids would often bring in dead animals to your class, oh, sure. which would not be acceptable here. Um, so I feel, like, I feel like our society, I guess, has become a little more sensitive um, so do you think that's it's harmful to our students not to have these types of hands-on ex- um, experiences? Well, the, the kids did not kill the animal <laughs> to bring them in. That's after the truck or car had killed mm-hmm. the animal. They would end up bringing it in, and 
then I even went to the hospital and bought formaldehyde my, with my personal money to preserve them. And that is what created interest. The other teachers didn't have anything because they were afraid of it themselves. But <laughs> the children cleaned up whatever they brought in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would find containers or what have you or go somewhere to look for them and ask for them or wherever I needed to go. And uh, the other students, they wanted to come to my class. They just wanted to be in my class. And so they could come in and see. And there were times when I would let other classes come in and mm -hmm. observe these. But like, one girl brought some piglets. Her, her parents had killed the hog, not knowing that they were gonna, she was gonna have pigs. So she brought the little piglets and she, went back herself and washed them up and cleaned them up. And then I had the formaldehyde and we, we put them there. We did the same thing with the deer. And you know, some of those students end up being doctors and nurses and what have you. Because I, I believe in, you know, not going out just killing them themselves, but after they had done so, well, let's look at them, let's see what, a pig looks like, you know, the baby, the little piglet, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and see the parts of its body and what have you. So, therefore, one girl said she didn't like science until she came to my room, and the thing that she liked was dissecting frogs. <laughs> we I... dissected frog one time to see how long it's going to live. Now, that, that was, might have been a little bit harmful. I know that they stopped doing stuff like that. But, that, that turned the girl on to science. Mm -hmm. And from then on, she passed science and went on through high school and she passed it because she said that was the class that turned her on. So we just have to well, turn one person on, turns another off sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I didn't make it a requirement, you come up here and cut this pig or, or, or wash this pig or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. They did it volunteer. That's mm -hmm. so cool. Um. I don't think I've ever had the desire to do that um, from a, a science mm -hmm. class, which um, I think is a missed opportunity. But anyways, so you're a scientist um, and a science teacher, but it also you've written a few poems that were displayed in your book. Um, yeah. One of them especially was for one oh. Oh, that reflection. Um, yes, it was for someone Emma? that had just yes Emma <laughs> Drummond Johnson. Yes. Um, why did you write it for her? Um, like what well, she was my good friend, and uh, she had married my mother's first cousin, so therefore her children were my cousins and mm -hmm. what have you. And um, she happened to graduate in the same graduating class to my undergraduate at Savannah State at the same time. And after she retired and became ill, I would go and visit her quite often. And I was just there, just moments before the last breath. And the only reason I went home, I didn't have any night lights on or anything, and I live alone. So I had to try to get home and get some lights on and what have you. And I didn't stay there until, you know, she completely gave the last breath. Mm -hmm. But I was right there most of the afternoon. Yeah. Um. 
So what what inspired you to write these poems? Um, they are times I just sit down and I just write. Mm -hmm. If whatever comes to mind, when you live by yourself, you can do as you please. Do it when you please. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so how did writing this memoir help you reflect on your life? Um, I don't know how to expand on that question. I guess just what um, made you want to write um, write this memoir? Well, I had been saying a good while that I was going to write something, but then I had a friend who was a teacher, a retired teacher, and we went to a state teachers meeting and we rode together and we were roommates and she was a white friend of mine. And she said, Minnie, you need to write a book. So on our way back, she kept telling me that. I bet she told me 10 times before we got back, I need to write a book from our conversation. Uh -huh. So then every once in a while, I would think I need to write a book. And so then I started, you know, thinking about it a little bit more seriously mm -hmm. and just decided I had no idea it was going to turn out like it did. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's very, very... Um, inspiring life that you led. Um, so, on page 33, let me find it, hold on. You talk about a house being notorious. Uh, it says, why, why did you call it, yeah, why did you call it notorious? Well, I think that was the little wheat house. It was just a one room. My granddad had really built it to put his wheat in. See, we, when I grew up, we didn't have to go to the store for very much. I mean, he killed a hog and he killed a calf once a year, and we, and they raised the chickens and stuff like that. But, and he raised his corn and he raised his wheat and he would carry it, you know, to the mill and get the flour from the wheat and, and the corn meal from the um, corn. And so uh, he was just building his house to put his his uh, products in, and a little old lady came and wanted to live in the little house. And she didn't live there very long before she died, but he let her live in the little one room. And then she went next door and spent the night with some neighbors and died. So then from there on, just different ones, different ones, would ask to move in that house. And I did write down how many people lived in the house. I can't remember right now, just right offhand. But you would be surprised at how many different people lived in that one room. Uh, is it still a um, Yes, standing? the little house is still there. And uh, it's not in the same place uh, where my granddaddy built it because when they uh, did the bypass in Madison, uh, they, they changed the road. Where I grew up, I grew up on uh, 278, the highway from Atlanta to Augusta. But uh, when they did the bypass, when you come to Athens 441 or what have you, uh, that changed some things, and we, uh, they bought a portion of my granddaddy's land, and it was my, well, my, he had willed or given it to my sister, so she had to sell that part of the land, and they had, my aunt had a portion of the land, 
So they moved the house off of the land for the the highway that they were building down through there, and they moved it back of my aunt's house. But when she died, they tore down that old house and built a new house. But they remodeled the little one room, and it's back there just the cutest it can be. <laughs> Um, okay. Oh, yes. Were you a political activist um, directly, or was it just through um, your teaching that you were Just through my, through my teaching. I, after I was old enough to vote, I've been voting ever since. But uh, as far as politics is concerned, that was not my area. Mm-hmm. And now I have a grandson. You ask him some questions. He knows, <laughs> but, but that was just not my area. Area, and but I always believed that I should vote and that we have that right. So I was going to use it. Yeah, I think that's. Um, a, I think many people don't have that um, belief anymore. At least from what I've seen. Um, I think that just one vote doesn't have um, doesn't have enough significance for it to be worth it. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to hear that you don't agree with that because um, I don't agree with that. I think that everyone should um, definitely vote for what they believe in because it's one of the most powerful tools that you have. Okay. That's what I consider is powerful tool. <laughs> um, so. You played a lot of different, you mentioned a lot of different games um, that kids played in the street and at school and everything. What was your favorite childhood game to play? Well, we played little ring games. You know, we'd get in a little ring and we would just go around with a little song and, and jump around, dance around, and <laughs> what have you. We didn't, I never was able to go like to ball games and what have you, the things after school because I always had to be back home and uh, what have you. So was never athletic, never made two points. I tried to shoot basketball, but I never got two points yet. <laughs> and I even have basketball goals in my backyard. My grandchildren play with it, but uh, just, I like word games now, and Scrabble is my favorite <laughs> game. That's that's my favorite game. But uh, we didn't even have that when I grew up. Mm-hmm. And, and see, we didn't, I remember when we got our first TV, I was in high school. And same thing, like a, to have an inside um, bathroom and the toilets and what I can remember when it was built and everything in the in our house. Oh, not many people can say that anymore. That's interesting. Okay, so you talk about how. Um, okay, I'll just read this little excerpt. It said, in addition to regular learning, students were expected to help clean the yard, weed the flowers, and whatever else was needed to maintain a pleasant environment. Um, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> no, you don't. Well, see, this was the little one-room school. Yeah. It, it really was a church building, and the children, that, a lot of the children would go in there and 
and stack the pews they didn't have the nice comfortable you know pews that you have in churches now and they would stack them to make room for the teachers so that she could um, put the little chairs and what have you in different little areas mm -hmm. uh, according to the grades one through seven and then the older students and the students who could read or were good in math could help teach the other children. We had what they call a blackboard. It was black made out of wood and some white chalk to write on it. Mm -hmm. Some had to stand on little boxes, you know, depending on your height to get up to it. But then that's how we learned from and with each other. The teacher would let the students who had gotten the idea and they knew that they had the idea and work with some other groups that needed some help because she didn't have an assistant or an aide. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that this now we don't have that anymore? Probably, I mean, most likely because of the, the size of schools and um, teachers kind of, I guess, do the most teaching. Um, do you think it was an important um, skill or experience to have the other students kind of help her out and stuff? Well, like we did that. See, I, I didn't know anything about special education until later on in life. Mm -hmm. uh, when we went to school, everybody was in the same class. And the teacher would, you know, divide you out and I guess take the smarter students, helping the students who couldn't. And I was told that children who had special needs and deformities, that their parents didn't let them, black parents didn't let them go to school. They kept them at home and kept them here at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> I was, I had noticed you'd written about that and it's like, what do you think of the changes to special education? Like we have, I don't know a lot about it, but like we have classes like, like well, that I th now. And I think they are good when you have people who are prepared. Last night I saw where some parent was really uh, upset because she had a special needs child who could not communicate because the child couldn't talk and found out that the teacher was not really prepared or didn't was not certified, let's say, in that particular area. Now, I have a grandchild with special needs. He's a Down syndrome child. But we have done anything and everything with Gabriel to help him be the best he can be. When they travel, they, they don't miscarry him. And so the boy has been out almost all of the states, and they plan to finish. Uh, and he's just 12 years old. And this summer, they're planning for next summer to take a three-week trip to finish up the states they haven't traveled in with them. So people with children with special needs, they need to work with them, and they need to work closely with the teachers to make sure that they're doing the very best that they can with them. Yeah. I also, not quite related, but having your your children like growing up in like newly integrated schools like did that present like some my children new didn't challenges? what I did with my children um, black children were not going to kindergarten in Morgan County but there was a kindergarten for the whites so what I did was I paid to bring my children to Oconee County 
because I could get them in kindergarten. And my children started to school in Oconee County. And I stayed in Oconee County until I got my daughter in first grade. And then they start, she started Morgan County in first grade. And my son was in the third grade when he started school in Morgan County. And see, the the school that they the schools that they had, I didn't realize my granddad owned land that ran almost to the property where they Morgan County had a little college at one time. But we were never thought of going that way or going on those campuses. And 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 so we didn't go to the public library and, and stuff like that they had. We we didn't go to it. And the children would throw gravel and stuff at us uh, from the bus because I was in the eighth grade before I could, I was in the ninth grade, I believe, eighth grade, going to the ninth grade before I could ride a school bus. I was at the walk. And the children would throw pebbles and gravel at us, but they just would always say, I will speak to the superintendent about this. So as I grew older, I felt like she was teaching us nonviolence because she would tell us not to throw back. Um, okay, um, so you talk about, you said at the time there was a superstitious prejudice against children being left-handed. Um, what was that superstition? I don't know. I have several people in my family who are left-handed. I'm right-handed, though. But people, they didn't even make deaths for left-handed children, you know, or deaths where the left-hand child could, you know, sit here and write and be comfortable. All of them were for right-handed people, and I, I don't know who came up with that idea, but, you know, uh, people thought that if you were left-handed, Devil had done something to you. <laughs> you know the the word for left-handed in Latin is sinister, right? Sinister. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. This question has just been screaming at me for the past twenty minutes. What was Hat Day? <laughs> oh, that was at the senior center. Uh, when I probably talked about Hat Day then. I love wearing hats. <laughs> <laughs> And every year for a while, they would have what was called Hat Day. Mm -hmm. And the ladies would bring their hats and, um, and model their hats. So that's where the Hat Day came in. Not at school, but at the senior center. Okay. So just fun. <laughs> I just kept looking at it and I couldn't. I was like, I gotta know. <laughs> Oh, they would take pictures. Sometimes I remember I, I have a picture in, in the newspaper with my hat on. And I think they stopped it because every time they end up with a trophy. Yeah. <laughs> so they are no longer having hat day. I guess I've gotten enough trophies. It's justice to bring hat day back. Dylan yeah. likes hats. I, I'm a person. Oh, you like hats. hats. Okay. Well, most of the time it's because my hair is bad. So I just. <laughs> Every, day. Every um, day. So, you are a science teacher, but your love for science started earlier in your um, school career. Um, why was that? Well, it started in in high school just because of the method, I guess, the, uh, and the things that were in the book. 
and the, you know, the teacher was trying to help us learn more about what was going on. Mm -hmm. Because, see, we didn't have books to, our books were hand-me-down books from the white school. When they discarded their books to get new books, then they were passed on to us. So that's how I did learn to read and what have you from it, just because of that, but I learned to read. Yeah, yes. that's incredible how they're connected. Um, so you mentioned that you had several overnight trips. Was that in college? Um, and you went to see a movie at the Fox Theater in Atlanta? Oh, well, that was with the home economics oh, teacher home again. Economics. Now, she was n not very good as far as making dresses and pretty dresses, but she was good with arts and crafts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But she taught us about certain colors that we should put together or not put together and <laughs> how to be ladylike and how to sit. Because, see, uh, we didn't wear pants when we went to school. We wore little dresses, and they were always down below your knee and big pockets and what have you because I used to lie about wearing glasses. And the teacher would say, one day she's gonna send me home to get my glasses, which she still thought she sent me home. See? And I went up the road and sat in a ditch <laughs> uh, with another, she sent a, an older girl, and that's how I learned about Santa Claus in that <laughs> ditch. You see, so that's why I said parents should never say what their children won't do. And probably some of you have tried some tricks that your mom don't know and won't find out that you did. And see, I, I did that, and the teacher and mama never found out that I did that. But that's, that girl told me about her sister's boyfriends, and I, here I am in the seventh grade thinking it was a Santa Claus. And, and I surely didn't want my children to grow up and be dumb like that. I, when, as soon as Reggie could talk, he asked me, how was Santa Claus coming to our house? because we didn't have a chimney. <laughs> so I sat him down and told him the truth. So that's all I had to do when his sister was two years younger than him. When she started, that's Santa Claus, Santa Claus. Girl, mama, you're Santa Claus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he told just like I told him. Um, okay, so when you were in college, I think you lived with a family and you discovered that they were selling alcohol out of their basement. Oh, this was when I was doing my student teaching. Yes. Yes, yeah. I did my student teaching at a terrible place. <laughs> I was in Waycross, Georgia, mm -hmm. and that's something I never did was drink. And so, you know, I didn't participate with it, but I kept wondering why they were having so much company. <laughs> see these people coming and they ease on out, and then some more people come and what have you. But then when uh, my supervising teacher uh, was evaluating and we were talking about it and I let him know that I didn't think we were in a safe place and that he might want to reconsider, you know, about sending any students to that particular house. Uh -huh. <laughs> Did they ever offer you any or like? No, they didn't ever offer me any and I never went around, you know, but I just wondered why they were having so much coffee. <laughs> And then finally, I saw them get a ball out of a flower pot, you know, so <laughs> news to me. <laughs> wow. Um, oh, hold on. 
So besides the, we talked about the KKK prank earlier. Were there any other that stood out in your mind um, when you started teaching at Um. Right now, I can't think of one. That's all right. Um. So, you said desegregation. This is on page seventy-five. Um, desegregation upset cultural norms and the transition was not easy. For teachers like me, this challenge was coupled with an influx of new progressive, in quotes, ideas about teaching and learning. What were examples of these um, progressive ideas? Okay, first of all, I had to be able to find out uh, the cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And there were cultural differences because uh, even though I grew up with the little white girl my was my friend, but see, I didn't go to school with them, and I didn't know what was going on, and, and we didn't have, like, they, I found out later, learned, you know, business and how to type and what have you. I only saw one typewriter in the high school where I went, and it belonged to one of the teachers. My mother bought my sister there a typewriter, but we never learned to type with it. We just, you know, picked around on it. We had nobody to teach us, and no teacher at school to teach us, so therefore, you know, that was kind of a waste of a little money. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you mentioned you went to a lot of different conventions. Uh, I think one was with home economics class and then several teachers teaching conventions. Um, what were those like? I know every year my mom actually goes to a conference in Boston about the brain. Um, so I've never actually been at the conference, but I've heard a lot about them. Well, it depends on you know what kind of conferences that you're going to. And when I was in high school, uh, that my first trip out of state was with the home economics teacher again, and that was my first uh, train ride, and we went to Texas. I went running for national office, which I was not trained for in the first place. <laughs> Thank God I didn't get it. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I was always willing to participate and to try, and I felt like if I got it, somebody would help me get through it, you know. So. I had confidence in myself, pretty much. That's good. Um, so you mentioned riding on a train. You also said earlier in your book that your grandmother freaked out when she figured out that you had went on an airplane. Oh, yeah, she did. <laughs> um, airplanes I do love. I think if I had to change and couldn't teach, I would have probably been a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I love airplanes. and. Mom, uh, my my real mother never flew on a plane. My grandparent, my granddad, and I'm sure my dad never flew on a plane. But uh, my uh, grandmom there that wanted us on the book, we went to Ohio, and we didn't tell her we were going until the day we went. <laughs> and then she found out we flew. And then she had a heart attack, and we—I believe that was because of her first heart attack, what? because of she found out we went on that airplane. Was it just like, cause it was flying or like? Well, see, they had never, 
Mama, the only thing Mama had ever been on was a train. Maybe a bus. Mm -hmm. But they didn't travel. And they, they, the fathers, as far as I know, she went was to Tennessee. And my mother, that was my grandma, and my mother, I know she went to Florida. But now as far as visiting the other states, and I asked my mother one time if I got off and something happened to me, would she come and see me? She said if she could come by bus. But if I was expecting her by plane, she couldn't come. <laughs> wow. So what I did was took out an insurance that if I needed to fly back, they could fly me back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's see. So it says um, on page 83, I made a special effort to reach out and make my classroom an inviting home away from home for him. Um, and this was a student that was very withdrawn. Um, so I was... I wanted to ask um, how you were able to um, accomplish this. Um, if you don't mind okay, um, I had asked, noticed that the student was so withdrawn, and I spoke to a teacher. I always try to find out from somebody who lives in the neighborhood or what have you. So they told me where he lived, so one day I was able to travel in that direction and mm -hmm. found the house, and I saw it, and it was, I mean, I could understand. He didn't want others to know where he lived because of the living condition, mm -hmm. and it wasn't his fault. Yeah. So therefore, you have to do things that's going to be pleasant for the child, make him feel at home while at least while he's in my room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. So. Did um when you went, what was your college experience life? I know, like I know, Lucy and I are about to go. Um, and it's probably very different now, but um, was your college um, integrated or do you wish you could have gotten your doctorate? Oh, I did wish I could have yeah. gotten my doctorate and I did apply uh, at the University of Georgia. The thing that kept me from getting the doctorate was that I would have had to stop teaching and I had a daughter who was away at Howard by then, mm -hmm. uh, Howard University in D.C. and I couldn't afford to stop teaching because I needed my little money to go with her little money to help <laughs> her get through uh, mm -hmm. Howard. But um, when I went to Savannah State, um, it was only black children. So I was just with blacks. And I, I went to all of the state black schools. One summer I got a national science stipend. I went to Albany. Another summer I went to Fort Valley. So I know what the you know the campuses were like because I would take classes during the summer after I graduated to try to better myself and to be prepared for whatever it was I was teaching. Mm -hmm. Let's um, do a couple more really good ones because we're running out about an hour and ten. Oh so wow! That's okay. pretty. Oh, that's a lot because <laughs> I know we want to cut this down. I have about for a two. For NPR. I have two left okay. in here. Um, they're not like, you know, deep philosophical questions, but, um, <laughs> did you do any extracurriculars in college? Um, or do you wish you could have done any if you didn't? Well, in college, I only took what was required <laughs> and I failed history 
and I, as I told you, I was surely not in political science for sure, you know. And I had to, that's why I didn't graduate until August, uh, because I had failed that history class and I had to go back and take it that summer. <laughs> but uh, I did graduate, I can say, you know, within the four years. Mm -hmm. So I went in as, uh, I had just turned 16, so came out just after 21. Um, let's see, so I guess we can ask this one. Um, um, can you tell us about your family and how they helped influence and influenced you as a teacher? My family, as I told you, they had very little education. My mother received her GED after I had finished high school. And um, she went on to take nurse training and she was an LPN and that's how she, you know, helped me through college. Um, my grandparents had very little education, I think fifth and third grade maybe. So mm -hmm. therefore, when I went to college, I didn't have the help that most people have and you know, like your parents taking you there and getting you adjusted into your room and, and what have you. I went four years and nobody ever came to see me. So at Vacuillard, I went home and cried because everybody had somebody there but me. So I had made up my mind that, that Thursday when I was going to graduate that I'm getting that degree. My goal is accomplished, you know. But still wondering where in the world am I gonna work, you uh -huh. know. But see, luck is it, is it happened. I graduated that Thursday, got the job that Friday, and started work that Monday. So um, they they didn't have much to say about it, but I think they were happy that I became a teacher. And other people would say, "Oh, my child is in her room," and you know how much that children loved coming in my classroom. And then I taught several relatives and what have you, but that was one something that, whether it was my child or a cousin or what have you, everybody was gonna be treated the same in that room. Well, um, can I ask one more? Yeah, do one more. <laughs> okay, I was just, those are some good questions. Um, so I guess to finish this out, do you have um, any advice for students today or for new teachers to the profession? For new teachers? Uh, yes, I, I would think that they need to go in with an open mind because you're going to experience a lot of different um, things that you might not be anticipating. But how you handle it is the important thing. And as I said before, go in with love and trying to understand the students and especially the students' needs and go from there. I, I see so often that sometimes you can't tell the teachers from the students because of, I guess, the way they dress. Um, I sometimes don't look as professional as they should. We had a principal, he sent teachers home if they came looking a certain way. One one lady came and her blouse was a little lower. He just politely said, "Go home and change that blouse." <laughs> and she went home and changed it. 
because she wanted to keep her job, you know, and things like that. School is so far different now. And I mean, the style and what have you uh, is, you know it's gonna change. Each generation it does. Mm -hmm. So we just have to learn to go in with respect and do the very best that you can. But being that caring person, it'll help you to feel like you have a career that's worth having. And I just have enjoyed working with you all. <laughs> Thank you for coming in. Um, I really, really have enjoyed talking with you and learning about your life. Yeah, that was yes. great. Thank, Thank you, you so much for, for making the trip out and taking this time. Well, hope you can do something with it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And make sure everyone who's listening to purchase her book, um, From the Cotton Field to the Education Field by Minnie Peak. All right.